I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking what can history teach today's spies and counter-spies? My guest has spent his career unravelling the secrets of intelligence services and the opaque bureaucracies that oversee them. Christopher Andrew is Emeritus Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University and official historian of MI5, Britain's domestic intelligence service. During the final years of the Cold War, he worked with two defected KGB officers, Oleg Gordievsky and Vasily Mitrokhin, gathering unprecedented top-secret files on Soviet-Russian intelligence against the West. The FBI described the Mitrokhin files as the most complete and extensive intelligence ever received from any source. Well, that was until 2013, when Edward Snowden copied and leaked 1.5 million American National Security Agency documents, revealing the extent of Western government surveillance programs. At a time when both Russian operations against the West and concerns over governments spying on their own people are high on the political agenda, what should the priorities of today's intelligence services be? And what might they have to learn from those who went before them? Christopher Andrew, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Your new book is The Secret World, and it's a global history of the trade of spies from Caesar to Edward Snowden. What does that tell us about what changes in intelligence and espionage and what doesn't? The first person of any significance recorded in Western literature as emphasizing the need for good intelligence is actually God, who, without being disrespectful to him or Moses, gets a bit fed up with Moses. Look, here's a promised land. Get on with it. Send some spies to spy out. Moses bungles, uh, and it's 40 years in the wilderness, and they have to wait for that bright lad Joshua to come along and do the business um, uh, 40 years later. So the difference if we take the biblical account between messing it up and doing it right is the difference between having a promised land and not having a promised land. And so it has continued for three millennia. Uh, what did you make of intelligence networks at, at the courts? And yeah, you, we, we go we, from the Middle Ages through to perhaps the court of Elizabeth I, which is well known to have been so stuffed full of spies. It's, I think everyone was really working for everyone else, but ultimately most of them were working uh, for or against her directly. That kind of court espionage seems in, in some ways a completely different world, or, or is it? No. The very last portrait of her, a year before she died, the dress is the most exotic dress with no exception whatever in the entire history of the royal family. There are two motifs and two motifs only on the cloak, eyes and ears. What does that mean? It means don't even think about it, traitors. But it was the largest court in Europe. People could come in and out. The fact that she wasn't assassinated by religiously motivated assassins is pretty extraordinary. And how different then is the American development 
of the secret world, given that the Britain has the court, America mm. rebels against mm. the court and obviously rises up against George III and then has to put everything together with constitutionality. The great mm. obsession of the, the founding fathers is, is the constitution and everything that flows from it. Does that change yes, what it, kind of intelligence system it, you get? It, yes, it does. But um, I mean, the critical moment is, is, is the beginning and it very largely depends on personalities. The only way that George Washington and the rebels can beat the British is by having better intelligence. But because America is more isolated than by its, largely by its own wish uh, over the next century and more, there is not the same motivation. So by the beginning of the First World War, American intelligence is easily the worst amongst any major power. So Woodrow Wilson, highly intelligent man though he was, never occurs to him, for example, uh, that at the beginning of the special relationship, it's very special for the British because they're breaking his codes. Always useful. And when we come to Churchill, you, you point out or you, you suggest that people have misunderstood how important his own background in the intelligence world was. What had he learned that enabled him to think in the roundabout intelligence in a way that another well-educated leader of that time, looking after the Second World War, would have concluded? Well, he was an, a natural adventurer, and that is a considerable understatement. And then secondly, he was an extraordinary historian. You know, he really enjoyed being, amongst other things, a spy at the outposts of the late Victorian and the Edwardian Empire. Where was he? Uh, he was in a, a number of places, including the northwest uh, frontier. And even in the Boer War, uh, when he was caught at one point, he said if the, the Boers had recaptured him, no court-martial in the world would have hesitated what to do. He's a spy. Um, shoot him. Then in 1909, he's part of the cabinet that founds both MI5 and MI6. In 1914, uh, at the beginning of the First World War, he's the man who founds what later becomes GCHQ. You mentioned GCHQ and technology has given intelligence services unprecedented reach and the ability to plumb more secrets and also caused uh, some concern along the way about how far they should be able to intrude into civilian lives. Is this a golden age for intelligence gathering? Well, not necessarily. I mean, there is, uh, it's a golden age in information gathering. That's both a good thing, but as anyone, including The Economist, which um, has to process it, knows, having more information to process has a downside uh, as well as an upside. There is this delusion, however, that everything happens nowadays for the first time. Snowdens are extraordinary revelations, but they have not had a fraction not a fraction of the impact of similar scandals in the Victorian era. 18... Give me the Snowden of the Victorian era. The Snowden of the Victorian era is an Italian, Giuseppe Mazzini, uh, who was an Italian revolutionary and an Italian nationalist and living in London well away from Italian revolutions. And he spots the fact that his correspondence is being intercepted. Uh, this causes an absolute storm in Parliament, an absolute storm in the media. What's the consequence of that? The GCHQ of the time, which had been had a continuous existence since Elizabeth I, is closed down. 
Snowden is not in the same class in the impact he's had. Let's bring it back to, to something that is happening in the present. And this is the sense of a conflict between privacy and security. Now, you yes. say quite rightly that something like the Snowden revelations, the scale of it, mm. might historically be more modest than mm. we think, mm. reading pages and pages mm. about it and the internet up in arms about it. But that balance is a more difficult one, isn't it? Extremely it's societies Extremely which difficult. expect to know more. Yes. Have we got it right? Well, I think uh, we've got it uh, approximately right. But the the trade-off between civil liberties and security is one that every generation has to redefine. What Snowden has uh, uh, revealed is excessive secrecy. There was no reason that we shouldn't be uh, told about the level of uh, intelligence collection that was going on. Anything which gives the people on whom it's being collected any understanding of, of what's happening is a bad thing. Why did the global intelligence community fail to foresee 9-11 and the rise of religious terrorism in, in the way that it happened? Was it a failure of imagination, a lack of evidence? What would you pinpoint? Well, I think the official investigation in the United States, the 9-11 Commission, which reported four years later, got it absolutely right. It wasn't so much a little error here and a bigger error there. It was a failure of imagination. And the failure of imagination at its root was the near impossibility for um, the secularized West, even for people who practiced religion on, on Sundays, of understanding the motivation of people whose terrorism derived essentially from their own particular brand of religious extremism. But you've researched this in, in detail. When you look at the run-up to 9-11, what are, you know, from a failure to understand the entire ideology that's motivating your enemy, which is, is huge, but in detail, where do you think moments, when could 9-11 have been stopped? 9-11 couldn't have been completely stopped. But joining up the dots, for example, the FBI talking to the CIA... For example, the field offices of um, uh, the uh, FBI talking to headquarters. One by now well-known example is the fact that uh, they discover that one of the intended terrorists on 9-11, uh, Mosawi, is actually taking flying lessons. They reported to headquarters, uh, asking headquarters to ask other field offices if others um, uh, are doing the same. Surveillance was more difficult to conduct for a whole series of, uh, of reasons in the United States. You can only find out what bad people are up to by keeping track of them. We didn't do it perfectly, but we did it a damn sight better than the Americans. The only question is, why did the Americans do it so appallingly badly? Let's talk briefly about Iraq and particularly the proliferation of WMD and the, the fact that that was clearly the context in which the war to get rid of Saddam Hussein took place. Um, you have a, a briefly damning um, mention of the Chilcot report, the last big one here in, in Britain into the Iraq war. And you basically say it, it doesn't take an, enough account of, of other powers and uh, you know, who else was, was missing uh, the plot on, on WMD. But each country to an extent has to answer for itself, doesn't it? But in comparative context, for example, if one individual makes a mistake, which is made by all of his or her colleagues, what is the point of devoting the longest monograph in British history, 12 volumes, 2.6 million words, just to one 
I mean, the context of other people making the same mistake or not making the same mistake is absolutely central. And I think if one looks at the Butler report from some years earlier, actually, it was a lot better than the uh, the Chilcot report. The bigger question still pertains. Yes, the uh, major international intelligence services, including those who didn't back the war in, in Iraq and countries who didn't back the war in Iraq, uh, also underestimated what had happened or misread what had happened. But why did you get any clarity when you'd read all of this on why you thought that was? uh, Well, partly, a fairly little in from past past experience. Now, it's possible to compare in some respects really rather precisely the use of intelligence, which did involve intelligence on WMD during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And what happens there? You know, the, the most successful public use of intelligence in the entire history of American public use of intelligence, probably anyone's public use of intelligence. So Adlai Stevenson at the United Nations shows the overhead photography of the missile sites. You can make an exact um, analogy with uh, 41 years later when Colin Powell um, turns up, and then Secretary of State in the United States, turns up at the UN and said, I'm going to show you even more intelligence. He holds up a little file and he says, this is what they're keeping anthrax spores in. And then he shows computer-generated models of uh, biological warfare uh, delivery systems on lorries which move around. Both were entirely imaginary. They didn't exist. And then what's this based on? Well, it's based on an incredibly bad um, uh, source who uh, later um, admitted that he'd uh, he'd made it up, better known by his uh, codename, Curveball. Now, compare the way that the intelligence was assessed during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the positive confirmation there came from Oleg Penkovsky. Um, He was actually met by people, the Americans and the British, but it was mainly the Americans, just accepted that, well, Kerbal isn't willing to meet us and so on. The failure to learn from experience is the biggest uh, failure of intelligence during the Iraq war. Can I give just one other example? The highest value target, to use the jargon of the time, was Saddam Hussein. So he's caught and so he's interrogated. Now, at the end of the Second World War, they were the most precise, detailed, and with the gift of hindsight, successful interrogations of Nazi leaders. Hitler had killed himself, but the, uh, the number two, Goering. Goering was right. It was yep. so successfully done that it's a major historical source. Now, when Saddam Hussein is captured, there are no, let me just repeat that word, no American preparations, um, no questions prepared, no interrogator uh, prepared. They don't even find an interrogator for one month, and he's not an Arabic speaker. It's not for two uh, months that they find an Arabic speaker. And as the first man says, they make the most incredible mistakes. And that is an example of a total, and I think it reasonable to use the word, total failure to use from the, the most obvious intelligence expertise and background imaginable. Let's uh, turn to Russia, where intelligence shenanigans have been in in the news uh, recently, and doubtless will continue to be so about alleged Russian meddling in uh, the American elections and the response to that and the Mueller inquiry. 
Vladimir Putin is the only world leader to be a former intelligence chief and have deep experience in in the field as as an officer. Do you think Russia is driving a new covert Cold War and how much does his KGB background matter? Well, yes, to the first question and a lot to, to the other question. But, you know, he himself has repeatedly said, and nobody pays uh, any attention, that there are many glorious pages in the history of Russian uh, security. I mean, at the very moment when he becomes head of the FSB, the major successor uh, of the KGB in 1998, and the only reason he left it is that he was offered a couple of better jobs, prime minister and then president in, in quick succession. Time and time again, he produces a bit of intelligence history and we don't get it. There is a picture of him in 2007 mm. proposing a champagne toast. He's more or less teetotal, but there he is with a glass of champagne to an atom spy in World War II that we hadn't spotted, uh, George George Koval. And what did George Koval do? Well, what he did was um, to provide from the United States the secrets of polonium-210, which was used to initiate, to use a piece of jargon I don't fully understand, the first American atomic bomb and then the first Soviet uh, atomic bomb. And a few months earlier, he had authorized the use of polonium-210 to assassinate um, Alexander Litvinenko in London. Nobody picked up on that because when he talks about history, oh, he's just rambling on about history, isn't he? No, he isn't. And it's time we'd started paying attention. The assumption, if I understand you correctly, is that you think that Vladimir Putin himself uh, knew about and authorized the killing of Litvinenko. Well, there are, right? yes, there are only two possibilities, one that he did and the other that he didn't. Once, as Sherlock said, you've excluded what is impossible, what remains, however improbable is well, it. Well, it's not impossible, is it? I mean, you could have a Complete. Of, yeah, yeah, let me throw up the, you know, the case for that he didn't know goes like this and we hear it again with Skripal, which you might like to just turn to. Is, uh, this is done as a kind of revenge mission. It's done by people who uh, don't directly report to Vladimir Putin. You're making assumptions. You're you know, assuming that the worst of uh, the Russian leader. Why? What is the evidence that is not the it's, correct view? It's, it's just par for the course. It is inconceivable that there is a system in which um, uh, people can go off and uh, assassinate people abroad. Lots of things you've said in this conversation were treated as inconceivable, which turned out to happen? Well, uh, I think uh, the, 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 my particular use of inconceivable in this uh, particular instance is correct because it is historically the case. The judicial inquiry that took place in Britain reached the same conclusion that I've reached. If you were trying to get evidence of Russian involvement in uh, the, the Skripal poisonings or uh, indeed in election meddling, where is the pressure point? Where do you start? Well, first of all, you look for a, a pattern of behavior. And if the pattern of behavior is the usual pattern of behavior, that's a reasonable point. Now, so far as fiddling with elections, the Soviet era, they never saw an election they didn't want to fiddle with. So far as the, the, the West was concerned, they didn't do it very well. What has happened is that thanks to social media, there is now a method by which they can, they, they, they can do it. But at the end of World War II, the whole of the making of the Soviet bloc 
consisted of fiddling the elections in every country in the Soviet bloc. And they did get a lot better. I mean, Stalin suffered the humiliation shortly after the Second World War of only getting a 92.6 majority. Oh, my goodness. By the um, uh, beginnings of the Gorbachev era and the eve of the, uh, the, of the Gorbachev, it was almost up to 99% still better to them. And when you look at, at the links that so far have emerged and possibly more to come, we'll, we'll see what the Mueller inquiry says between Trump's campaign and, and Russia, the, the roles of Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn there as his former uh, security advisor. How far do you think that they have been willing dupes of a foreign intelligence service, which was in the end out to bend the result of an election? Well, I don't know and have never met Manafort. I have met Mike um, Flynn. And my impression of, uh, of uh, Flynn, he came to talk, to talk to my Cambridge seminar, is this is uh, an intelligent maverick. I was astonished he became director of uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. He is a maverick who has a capacity to behave unwisely. And do you have, do you think the Mueller inquiry will be able to nail concrete links between the Trump administration and Russia? I think they will find uh, something. And the reason that I think they will find something is that there is a long way to go. But uh, Mueller is, to put it mildly, a smart fellow. And uh, he's already got um, uh, people who are plea bargaining um, uh, with him. He's going to get a considerable volume of evidence out of that. What do you think that those who run intelligence services now, and particularly in this context of a resurgent, in some areas, aggressive uh, Russia, China waiting in the wings, and in America where the leadership of, of the country is also a challenge for those who collect intelligence, what should they bear in mind? What they should bear in mind is what exactly what people who deal with information bear in mind. A, check the sources, and B, look at it in context long term context. Any attempt to understand Putin without the long history of Soviet and pre-Soviet Russia is incredibly foolish. But alas, we live in the age of what I have called historical attention span deficit disorder. Christopher Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We'll keep our attention on you. <laughs> and we want to hear what you think. How should modern spooks be tackling the physical and digital threats of today's world? And how much access should they have to our private communications to do so? Write to us at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Do get in touch and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app. And if you enjoy our journalism and want to read some more of us, go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. <laughs>